Galatians 3, 1 through 9. You foolish Galatians, who has bewitched you? Before your very eyes, Jesus Christ was clearly portrayed as crucified. I would like to learn just one thing from you. Did you receive the Spirit by the works of the law or by believing what you heard? Are you so foolish? After beginning by means of the Spirit, are you now trying to finish by means of the flesh? Have you experienced so much in vain, if it really was in vain? So again I ask, does God give you his Spirit and work miracles among you by the works of the law or by believing what you heard? So also Abraham believed God, and it was credited to his right, to him as righteousness. Understand then that those who have faith are children of Abraham. Scripture foresaw that God would just, justify the Gentiles by faith and announced the gospel in advance to Abraham. All nations will be blessed through you. So those who rely on faith are blessed along with Abraham, the man of faith. We've been looking at uh, Paul's letter to the Galatians since Easter, and an unusual letter. Um, Paul is quite frustrated. You, you get the, the sense here. Foolish Galatians. He's upset because Paul went around the Roman Empire, specifically here the re- region of Galatia, central Turkey, planting churches, preaching the gospel, drawing together people who responded to the gospel creating churches, Christian communities, and then moving on. But coming behind him, as we've seen the the past few Sundays, there were other teachers coming along and saying, the gospel that you heard from Paul is not enough. Paul preached Christ alone. We had Jewish Christians coming along and saying, Jesus was the Jewish Messiah. You can't just be a Christian. You've got to become Jewish as well. You've got to get circumcised. You've got to follow the laws. You've got to become part of the covenant people. And as we've seen, Paul gets upset by this. Paul recognized this for what it is, an anti-gospel. The blasphemous claim that you need something in addition to Jesus to be saved. Paul's gospel was very simple. Christ alone, belief and faith in him. And so that's why he's getting so frustrated. You foolish Galatians, who has bewitched you? Before your very eyes, Jesus Christ was clearly portrayed as crucified. The language is a little um, clumsy here. The Galatians didn't see Jesus crucified. What they saw clearly portrayed before their eyes was a witness to that crucifixion in the person of Paul. So that's what he's saying. I proclaim this clearly in your uh, markets, in your squares, in your synagogues. And that is what you responded to, Jesus crucified, and that is enough. What you've got to remember is that Paul was preaching to people who were saturated with religion. One of the many remarkable things about the Roman Empire was that it was the first time in human history that so many people, millions of people, had been able to communicate with each other in a common language, with trade routes, with freedom of travel, 
through the whole Roman Empire. And so millions of people, certainly hundreds of thousands of people traveling, were able to trade, to travel, to argue, to share their cultures, to share their beliefs, to share their religions with each other. And so there were hundreds, if not thousands, of religions. Everybody in this big melting pot. And what was so extraordinary is the extent to which Christianity stood out. I would like to learn just one thing from you. Did you receive the Spirit by the works of the law? When he says works of the law, he's thinking about this claim that you need to become Jewish, you need to obey the Jewish law, you need to get circumcised, or by believing what you heard. Are you so foolish? After beginning by means of the Spirit, are you now trying to finish by means of the flesh? Have you experienced so much in vain, if it really was in vain? Paul's specific frustration is the Galatians are adding to the gospel. What made Christianity so unique? What made it good news to ears that were weary of hearing of all these different religions? What stood out? What was the power of the Christian gospel? Well, most religions focus and teach how human beings can get God's attention. How do you make God pay attention and do what you want? That's the essence of most religious belief in the world. What is Christianity? What has God done to grab our attention? It's the difference between what do we have to do and what has God done. And the good news that God loves us before we even know him. That Jesus Christ, his son, reveals that love by sacrificing himself. That's why Paul refers to the crucifixion. The good news is all we have to do is believe in what has already been done. Nothing else. No other performance. No following other specific laws or dietary rules or, or modes of behavior. No one wearing funny clothes or rituals. Believe in the God who has done already. Not in what you have to do. That's the essence. And the fact that they could let go of something so simple and, and so straightforward is why Paul is upset. So again, I ask you, does God give you his spirit and work miracles among you by the works of the law or by your believing what you heard? Notice what it's saying here. The essence of Christianity is not agreeing, it is receiving a spirit from God, the God who is active in engaging his people. In fact, if you look at how people become Christians, if you look at what the Bible teaches, you see it is all about God. How do you become a Christian? How do you receive the Holy Spirit? 
Well, probably the best example is the example of Peter in the book of Acts. Peter and the other apostles are together, and they receive the Holy Spirit, Pentecost, Holy Spirit descends in power, and it gives them the ability to speak in the language of everybody that is listening. The gospel is supernaturally empowered by the presence of the Holy Spirit. And if you look at what Peter actually said, there's no magical formula, no incantation, no strange sequence of words. All Peter does is witness what he saw. This is what I saw Jesus do. This is who he is. And so the beginning of all Christianity, all Christians, is this sharing, this witnessing to Jesus with the power of the Holy Spirit. That's how it begins. It's a supernatural act. And when those words are spoken, it's striking, by the way, that if you look in the Gospels, the Apostle John calls Jesus the Word of God, God's communication to humanity. When that Word is empowered by the Holy Spirit and applied to the human heart, that is the beginning of belief and faith. Jesus himself gives uh, an example. He tells the parable of the sower, where the word is compared to a seed that is planted in soil. But then the spirit has to come and quicken the seed, has to allow the seed to grow and take root and bear fruit. That's exactly how it works. A supernatural act where human beings' witness of Christ is applied by the Holy Spirit to a human heart, softens it so that it can hear the good news and recognize the good news. So that head knowledge, knowledge about Jesus, turns into a softened and fruitful heart, a heart that can be in relationship with God. And then we saw the last couple of weeks, that act the act of belief, faith in response to the gospel, is what justifies us. That is, makes us right with God. Puts us in a right relationship with God. Now, I'm sure everyone in this room has a different experience. I don't know how many times I heard the gospel before I became a Christian. I think I read somewhere, some evangelist book, that you have to hear the gospel five or seven times. I can't remember. Because the human heart is hard. And the gospel needs to be witnessed again and again to us. As some of you have heard, the crucial thing for me was when I first came to America. Britain is a, a place where very few Christians. I didn't hear the gospel there. But as soon as I got to America... You don't realize this, but America is saturated with Christianity. I hitchhiked from New York over to San Francisco. It took me six weeks. And I don't really know how many times Christians picked me up, cornered me in their car because there's nowhere to run or hide, and shared the gospel for me again and again and again across America. Now, at the time, 
I thought this was just crazy America. You know, I was on safari and this is what the wildlife does. <laughs> but I realize now that what I was getting was the gospel. Repeated witness. Repeated sharing. Until this old hard heart finally was softened enough to receive. And I became a Christian at the age of 30. It is always a combination of personal witness and supernatural power of the Holy Spirit. And by the way, that's why if there are people in your life that you are sharing the gospel with, friends or family or co-workers, people you're in relationship with, don't despair. It's not an argument that you have to win with them. All you have to do is faithfully continue to witness the Christ that you know, and the Holy Spirit will do the rest in his own good time. It's not a fight. It's not an argument. It is a spiritual struggle. But your contribution is just this witness, sharing what Jesus means to you, what you have experienced. That's all. You don't have to go off and read clever books or go off to seminary to learn subtle arguments. Pure, honest witness. Peter was a fisherman, uneducated, illiterate, and yet the first time he witnessed, 3,000 people became Christians. Because it wasn't him, it was the Holy Spirit at work. And then Paul goes on. So also Abraham believed God and it was credited to him as righteousness. Understand then that those who have faith are children of Abraham. So Paul shifts gear here. Remember, he is in a dialogue. He is in a, a debate with those who would say you have to become Jewish Christians in order to be a real Christian. And so what does Paul do? He goes back to the very beginning, to Abraham, to the father of faith, to link the idea of Christian faith in Jesus with the Jewish idea of faith that comes through Abraham and his descendants. He is bringing here the Bible and all of Scripture together. So also Abraham. I, I prefer, actually, there's an old translation that goes, consider Abraham. Well, consider Abraham. What about him? How does he shed light on faith, on our relationship to God through Christ? He lived, you know, 2,500 years ago, somewhere around there. What's that got to do with Jesus? Well, how did Abraham get his faith? How did his relationship with God begin? If you go back to Genesis, the first book of the Bible, you get early on, it's in chapter 12, God's call on Abraham's life. This is how it goes. The Lord had said to Abram, this is before God changes his name to Abraham, go from your country, your people, and your father's household to the land I will show you. I will make you into a great nation, and I will bless you, and I will make your name great, 
and you will be a blessing. And I will bless those who bless you, and whoever curses you I will curse. And all the peoples on earth will be blessed through you. All the peoples. So this is in Genesis. The last thing that happened was Adam and Eve's rebellion, which left the earth under a curse. It left all humanity and the entire earth cursed until Abram and his relationship with God. When God, through him, and as we will see, his faith, begins the process of reversing the curse, restoring a broken earth, restoring humanity's proper relationship with God, making people righteous. And God makes a covenant with Abram. When Abram was 99 years old, the Lord appeared to him and said, I am God Almighty. Walk before me faithfully and be blameless. Then I will make a covenant between me and you and greatly increase your numbers. Abram fell down and God said to him, As for me, this covenant is with you. You will be the father of many nations. So this is before Israel. This is before Moses. This is before uh, Mount Sinai and the law and, and Jerusalem and the nation of Israel. This is before everything. This is the very beginning of the relationship with human, between human beings and God. And notice what God says. You, Abram, he's going to be called Abraham soon, you are going to be the father of many nations. That is, not just Israel, the future Israel, but the entire world. It's all going to come through you. No longer will you be called Abram. Your name will be Abraham. For I have made you a father of many nations. I will make you very fruitful. I will make nations of you, and kings will come from you. I will establish my covenant as an everlasting covenant between me and you and your descendants after you for the generations to come to be your God and descendants after you. The covenant you are to keep. You are to undergo circumcision and it will be the sign of the covenant between me and you. You are to undergo circumcision, and it will be the sign of the covenant between me and you. This is strange, right? This is exactly what the Jewish Christians have been saying to Paul's Galatians. And Paul's beef with Jewish Christians is this requirement. So why would Paul go all the way back to Abraham, where this covenant is established, and the covenant of circumcision begins? Doesn't he undercut his own argument? Isn't he demonstrating that you do indeed have to follow the laws and practices and rituals of Judaism? And of course the answer is no. Why? Because the essence of God's promise to Abraham is that God himself will act in history to guarantee his promise. That's why it's not just a promise, it's a covenant. God himself will guarantee that it happens. 
It is God who will guarantee that the covenant produces a descendant who will be a blessing to many nations. And of course, that's the essence of Paul's gospel. God's action in the world. Christianity is not primarily about what human beings do. Primarily, Christians have faith and belief in what God is doing. Not some abstract theoretical God, but the living God who has always been active in the world, in history. In fact, world history is literally, according to Christians, his story. God's progressive redemption and renewal of a broken world. But what has that got to do with circumcision? What an odd thing to, to link it to. Why does chopping off a foreskin do anything at all? Isn't this just some ancient ritual that has nothing to do with us anymore? Well, why did God request that? Why was circumcision a sign of the covenant? Why not a funky haircut or a tattoo or some kind of clothing or wearing your hair in a ponytail? Some ritual or song or who knows? It could have been anything. Why of all possible things, circumcision? Well, it's easy, really. Circumcision makes the male organ of reproduction the sign of God's promise to Abraham and his descendants. And why? Because it's the sexual union of a man and a woman that is going to produce the children who are going to be their descendants generation after generation. And it is through those generations that redemption will come. The blessing that God promises to Abraham will come from his children and their descendants. And so circumcision points forward in history to the Redeemer who is going to be a descendant of Abraham. An unbroken lineage of children down through the ages. Children of the promise. Children who are going to be part of the covenant people. Out of which the Messiah will come. Now, the Messiah has come. What then of circumcision? Well, it's done its job. It pointed forwards to Jesus. But now, what is the sign of the covenant? You know, you have in this book an Old Testament or an Old Covenant and a New Testament or a New Covenant. What's the New Covenant? Jesus Christ's blood. Because it's Jesus Christ who goes to the cross, is crucified. And when we are baptized, that is, washed by the blood of Christ, we become part of the covenant. See what the linkage is there? Circumcision points forward in history because it points down through the descendants of Abraham to Jesus. Baptism looks backwards in history looks back to Jesus and his sacrifice on the cloth. So when we are baptized and when we are when we baptize our children we are claiming that same covenant 
that God made with Abraham. That we would be his descendants. And so now you see Paul's entire gospel. By bringing the gospel to Gentiles, that is, people outside the Jewish covenant, he is making them part of the covenant family. He is making them the descendants of Abraham. He's making them Christians. Verse 8. Scripture foresaw that God would justify the Gentiles by faith and announce the gospel in advance to Abraham. All nations will be blessed through you. So those who rely on faith are blessed along with Abraham, the man of faith. There's Paul's argument. But it's interesting what he says here. And this essentially is the final point. Scripture foresaw that God would justify. If you go back to the Old Testament and you read the stories of Abraham and Moses, of David, you read the stories of the prophets, they only get glimpses of this. When Jesus actually shows up, he is as much a surprise to Judaism as anybody. They don't fully comprehend what the gospel is going to look like. They know God's promises that he will redeem, but they don't know the details. But notice, Scripture foresaw. If you go back now to the Old Testament with the eyes of faith, knowing about Jesus, you find him everywhere. In fact, Jesus himself claimed that the Old Testament is all about him. Everything, every story, every situation, every encounter. But what does it mean when it says, and announce the gospel in advance to Abraham? Somehow Abraham was different. Now what does that mean? You can argue about what that means, and people do. But I want to tell you an end with perhaps the most mysterious, uh, certainly the most terrible story in all of Scripture, one that has haunted people who have considered the Bible, that it still provokes debate today. And it's the story of Abraham and his son Isaac. And so I'm going to end by reading that to you. So this is at the end of Abraham's life. Even though he and Sarah were old at this time, he has a son, Isaac. But then, God asks Abraham to do something terrible with his son. This is uh, Genesis 22. Sometime later, God tested Abraham. He said to him, Abraham, here I am, he replied. Then God said, take your son, your only son, whom you love, Isaac, and go to the region of Moriah. Take your son, your only son, whom you love, Isaac, and go to the region of Messiah. Sacrifice him there as a burnt offering on a mountain I will show you. What an outrageous thing to do to anyone. You know, there's a, a current-day um, religious skeptic, Richard Dawkins, and he wrote of this story. By the standards of modern morality, this disgraceful story 
is an example simultaneously of child abuse, bullying in two asymmetrical power relationships, and also the first recorded use of the Nuremberg defense. I was only obeying orders. Yet the legend, as he calls it, is one of the great foundational myths of all three monotheistic religions, talking about Christianity, Judaism, and uh, Islam. What is so terrible about this story? Well, Richard Dawkins points out what's so terrible. Asking a father to sacrifice a son. Is there any hope in this story? When I was at uh, seminary, I spent a very hard year learning Hebrew. And every week, a professor made us translate a section of the Bible from Hebrew to English. And this is one of the earliest ones. And there's this phrase, take your son, your only son, whom you love, Isaac. And it repeats through this passage. And you get to recognize the Hebrew words, because Hebrew is a very concise language. And it became the stepping stone through this passage, and I was completely hooked. In fact, did this whole translation of this whole chapter in one day, which for me was a lot, because it was so haunting, this idea of a father sacrificing a son. And there's a little bit of hope here. Take your son, your only son, whom you love, Isaac, and go to the region of Moriah. We know from the book of Chronicles that a thousand years later, Solomon would build the temple of Jerusalem on Mount Moriah. And we know that a thousand years after him, Jesus Christ would go to that temple and would be crucified on Mount Moriah. So already you get the sense that this story has a richness and resonance beyond a superficial reading. But let's read it. Early in the next morning, Abraham got up and loaded his donkey. He took with him two of his servants and his son Isaac. When he had cut enough wood for the burnt offering, he set out for the place God had told him about. On the third day, Abraham looked up and saw the place in the distance. He said to his servants, Stay here with the donkey while I and the boy go over there. We will worship and then come back to you. We will come back to you. Is that wild hope? Wishful thinking? Denial? Is that faith? Isaac spoke up and said to his father, Abraham, Father, yes, my son, Abraham replied. The fire and wood are here, Isaac said, but where is the lamb? for the burnt offering. Abraham answered, God himself will provide the lamb for the burnt offering, my son. And the two of them went on together. When they reached the place God had told him about, Abraham built an altar there and arranged the wood on it. He bound his son, Isaac, and laid him on the altar on top of the wood. Then he reached out his hand and took the knife to slay his son. What do you think he was thinking when he did that? Was his face serene? Was he tormented? Was he in agony? Was he weeping? All the text says is he took a son, to, took a knife to kill his only son. 
But the angel of the Lord called out to him from heaven, Abraham, Abraham, here I am, he replied. Do not lay a hand on the boy, he said. Do not do anything to him. Now I know that you fear God, because you have not well withheld from him your son, your only son. Abraham looked up, and there in a thicket he saw a ram caught by the horns. He went over and took the ram and sacrificed it as a burnt offering instead of his son. So Abraham called that place, the Lord will provide. And to this day it said, on the mountain of the Lord it will be provided. The angel of the Lord called to Abraham from heaven a second time and said, I swear by myself, declares the Lord, that because you have done this and have not withheld your son, your only son, I will bless, I will surely bless you and make your descendants as numerous as the stars in the sky and as the sand on the seashore. Your descendants will take possession of the cities of their enemies and through your offspring all nations on earth will be blessed because you have obeyed me. Abraham, the father of faith. Remember, Paul says that the gospel was announced to Abraham. Where was the gospel in the story? The gospel is the moment that Abraham is confronting by two terrible, impossible decisions. Either betray God and his direct order, or sacrifice his son, his only son the son that he loved. And in the middle of that impossible decision, what does Abraham do? He has faith that God will provide a way out. He doesn't know how. He doesn't see how. It's an impossible, dead-end situation. And yet, Abraham trusts and has faith. And in that crisis of faith, is the beginning of God's relationship with people. And that lineage that will come from him, Isaac and Jacob and all the tribes of Israel and David and everything that the Old Testament records is built on the foundation right here. Because what does God reveal? You know, ultimately, despite all the protests, Abraham isn't required to kill his son. Isaac survives. Isaac has a family. But God reveals something about faith. There will be a time when God has to make a decision. Do I stay in relationship with the people of the world, sinful, rebellious people, or do I keep hold of my son, my only son, the son that I love, Jesus? And of course we know the choice that God makes. He is willing to see his only son crucified in order that we can be in relationship with him. And it is our faith in that crucifixion, that revelation of God's love and God's faithfulness that is the basis of the Christian church. We know that when God was faced with that impossible choice, 
he did what was necessary. There was no one to stay his hand. His son died. And he did it so that we could be with him forever. A God who will do that for you and for me can be trusted. A God that can do that will always be faithful in everything that he promises. A God that would do that to fulfill his covenant is a God that you can build your life on, that you can trust those that you love, that you can serve and worship. All you have to do is have faith in God's action, his willingness to do what's necessary, his continuing activity in your life, his presence right here in our church, in our midst. That's who we are. Christians are children of that covenant, depending on God as their Father to do what is necessary. And that's why we don't need anything else. That's why Paul fought for that as his gospel. That's why we're here. Let's pray together. Gracious Father, we thank you that in Christ you have demonstrated the unfathomable depths of your love for us, a love that we can trust forever, a love that we can build our life on, a love that is a foundation for everything we do. Lord, we believe. Help our unbelief. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.